0: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. I am back again with Michael Pina of SP Nation, who's on the other line. Now, Michael, we have some sort of late breaking news to get to. Last night, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN.com provided some very detailed reporting on a team meeting involving John Beeline, Cleveland Cavaliers coach, and his squad. During that team meeting, According to players and assistant coaches who were there, John line referred to the players saying that they were playing like a bunch of thugs. He uh, has clarified since then that he meant to say playing like a bunch of slugs, presumably uh, in response to you know sluggish defensive effort uh, and, and things of that nature. Now, um, clearly, thugs is a loaded term. It's something that uh, you know African American players could certainly. Uh, you know, take exception to, uh, you know, rightfully so. John B. Lyon is in his first year as an NBA coach. He is 66 years old. There's already been previous reports this season of some tension in terms of his coaching style uh, and his uh, philosophies in terms of communication that have uh, rubbed the players the wrong way. So this is not sort of the first bubble up of of tension there in Cleveland, Uh, but it is one I think that you know, frankly, it's, uh, you know, it's a troubling situation for the organization to deal with, but also it puts his job into a very precarious position so early uh, in his tenure as an NBA coach. So Michael, when you're reading the news last night, when you're seeing all of the slug references and, uh, you know, people trying to decide whether or not that's a good cover story or a bad cover story or everything else, what was your major takeaway?
1: When I, I first, I mean, you broke this story to me, really. You sent me an email uh, either early this morning or late last night about uh, saying we had to cover Beeline at the top of the show. And so I immediately thought he was fired. That's That was where my, my head went to first. And then when I looked it up, like, I, I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, I, obviously, Thug is a very... It's uh, coded language that has no place in any workplace at all. And Can I also so- say on
0: Thug real quick, that's a term that usually is referred to like super physical, like flagrant foul type behavior, right? If we're talking about an NBA context, I mean, I guess there was some connotations, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago with guys, you know, the tattoos and the, the super baggy clothing, you know, maybe some... You know, analysts or media members would write NBA players off as thugs for sort of their self presentation. I don't feel like I hear the word "thug" in an NBA context very often. Do you?
1: Well, it's it's not acceptable anymore. I think that's probably why you don't you don't hear it. Even if you were referring to someone who is you know uh, someone who is an enforcer figure. I mean, the, just the word "thug" has been kind of replaced. The word "posse" is no longer a thing that you can say either like there's just a lot of coded language as we kind of evolve as a society and and what is okay and what is not okay to say and what is offensive and not offensive but i mean
0: that's a great point you know lebron james had taken exception to the word posse a few years ago when uh, phil jackson had sort of referred to the people who were around lebron uh, lebron during his time in miami and sort of how influential he was in terms of making decisions for that franchise so that was a situation where I think the word "posse" got canceled by basically everyone at that time, and this might be the thug reckoning, I guess, uh, in in the NBA context. But as you're saying, it's it's already kind of well established by uh, scholars and um, you know racial
1: critics or uh, you know thinkers that this is just a word that everybody needs to stay away from. Right. So then when I woke up and I saw the story, read the read Adrian Wojnarowski's piece on it. And then over breakfast this morning, uh, I was telling my wife, who went to the University of Michigan and knows who who John Beeline is, uh, about the story. And it took me about five minutes to convince her that I was not making this up entirely. And was it the
0: slug factor? I mean, is that what was was prompting her confusion? Or was it just so- <laughs> Beeline's reputation? Because Beeline came in with kind of a spotless reputation from Michigan. I mean, I'm a, a Michigan football fan. I don't really follow the basketball program that closely. But I understand a lot of the bloggers out there who I follow for Michigan football, like view John Beeline almost as like a saint for
1: turning around the program and
0: for modernizing their offense and three-point shot and everything like that.
1: Yeah, I, I I think it was more the latter. Like I don't, I personally I don't know Beeline. I have not uh, ever interacted with them. The Cavaliers, uh, they've been to New York, but I wasn't able to attend that game. But uh, I did listen to the uh, Adrian Adrian Wojnarowski podcast from earlier this year uh, with uh, with Beeline this morning, and I mean he comes across as like when he says that he meant to say slugs, and he said the, like I personally. I just believe him. Uh, I don't I, again I, I don't know him at all or anything like that but I believe that excuse and I I, I do think that people do you know there are F- Freudian slips here and there and so but I think the the bigger question here is more like will it matter? Well I think that's a great
0: point. First of all, I believe him too. Uh, primarily the reason why I believe him is because the Cleveland Cavaliers are a bunch of slugs. You know, that's how they play. They don't play hard on defense. (laughs) They don't rotate. And it starts with their veteran leader, Kevin Love, who has been checking in and out of, uh, you know, professional level play all season long. I get that he's frustrated. 100% get that he's frustrated. Everything around him has changed. And there's so little about his basketball life that he controls right now. It would drive me insane, too. There is no question I would struggle to be teammates with Colin Sexton and Darius Garland. I mean, we almost have to track how many times they pass the ball rather than how many assists they get because the numbers are so low. So it would drive me up the wall. There's no doubt. But his responses in some situations, walking around the court dejected, stomping up the court, punching a chair, doing those kinds of things are not helpful. I think he's acknowledged and and understands that. Um, But it also just contributes to a, you know, a culture where are people fully bought in or not? Now, in terms of whether this does matter, to me, it absolutely does. And even just put aside the thug and the slug talk, okay? Let's just consider (laughs) the average NBA team, does this get out? And does it get out so quickly? The average NBA team will have enough faith and trust in its coach and enough belief in the sanctity of the locker room. That if there is this kind of a uh, slip of the tongue or this kind of a statement that offends people, players will either go to management. Players will confront the coach. Players will go to assistant coaches. Okay, now you can have another team meeting. Follow up. He apologizes. He says what he tried to, uh, you know, what he tried to mean. And people go forward. It never gets out, right? I'm not saying that coaches are constantly calling their players thugs around the NBA. I'm just saying there is a omerta type of protocol that protects this kind of a thing from becoming public, right? We hear about team meetings all the time, players-only meetings all the time. We rarely get this level of detail. So that is very, very bad news for John Beeline. That means that the players uh, have either already tuned him out or they're at the point where they're trying to push him out the door, or he's lost some other major faction of the organization that is now angling for him to be, you know, on thin ice, right? This is incredibly damaging for his reputation. Uh, It's incredibly embarrassing. And it's the kind of label that will stick for all the casual NBA fans out there who didn't know about John Beeline, didn't know what was going on in Cleveland, rather than this being this incredible lifer college coach coming in to try his hand at the NBA uh, and, you know, trying to develop a young and upcoming uh, roster around, you know, two lottery pick guards. The story has now become, here's the old guy who who has offended his players
1: so badly that it got out to the press. That's sort of the, the headline of his reputation. I didn't even realize that he was first of all one of probably my fourth or fifth reaction to this story was that he's 66 and they gave him a 5-year contract. So you can't really I mean you could fire him for sure and this could be the PR cover and the excuse if you were to move on and you wanted to because he's just not it's just not clicking with him and anybody on the roster it seems there have been a lot of reported stories earlier in the year about that. But I just like either you you stick with him and you you make you're aggressive before the trade deadline and you get people who are unhappy in that system and in that culture out of there or like if if Darius Garland and, and Colin Sexton are the are two key figures who just aren't getting along with this guy like I, I don't know really know what you you do here like well, that- one year into a five year deal it's it's. It's really early, and he's—they uh, they brought him in to you know teach fundamentals and and build a culture there. And he's talked about how he wants the Cavaliers to be the like the Spurs when he leaves. So I don't—I don't, I just don't know what you do with this right. situation. Well, and I don't know when it's going to blow blow over. I think the timing
0: is really important here because it goes back to my point about the Omerita keeping things in house. If people were bought into the vision of the front office of the organization, if there was a respect factor all around. This doesn't come out until after the trade deadline because guys just assume that they're going to be taken care of, right? And guys just say, look, it's only a month. We can get through this. Um, you know, It's awkward. We don't see eye to eye. Philosophically, we don't think he's really the right guy for the job, but I'm probably going to get traded in a month anyway, so who cares, right? I mean, this is a very aggressive action for it coming out, uh, a proactive action for it coming out. And it says that people are past their wit's end, right? They either want him gone or... Uh, or they want to be gone. And it's just applying a ton of pressure to Kobe Altman to make moves uh, you know, before the deadline. I think your point on his contract is important. And also he was kind of hand-selected, right? I mean, he was viewed as being a stable figure for this developmental era of the post-LeBron uh, you know, time period. They had to give him the five-year deal because he was such a coveted college coach and such a successful college coach at a, a big-time program. And so... I think their ownership group is rich enough to be able to you know pay him off. I mean Dan Gilbert's paid luxury taxes for years, so you know paying John Bline to go away uh, wouldn't be the end of the world. But I do think it would add to a narrative of a lot of coaching turnover under Dan Gilbert that I bet he would be uh, you know at least a little bit sensitive to. Now he has his own health issues uh, that have been going on. There's other people within that ownership group, so it could be you know a little bit of jockeying for power. We will have to watch that play out. If I was Cleveland though, I would try to ride this thing out, right? You selected John Beeline for a reason. Uh, He is a very proven, good coach. You just have to get the veterans out of there. They were never gonna be a part of this equation. That requires a little bit of patience until the trade deadline. And then at that point, I think the pressure is off the younger players. They're not getting the side eyes from their older teammate, and they're just kind of able to go out there and do what they want to do, which is grow on the job and get a lot of shots up and not pass the basketball, right? I mean, that's that's sort of where this thing is going. So I would hang tight if I were them. I would try to weather this storm, uh, but we'll see how it plays out. Now, Michael, simultaneous to what's going on in Cleveland is what's going on in New York. And I happen to see the Knicks for the first time this season in Los Angeles, and I was very curious to see R.J. Barrett because I feel like he's a little bit of a forgotten man in terms of the the rookie conversation. Uh, I think you, guys like you and I have really hyped up John Morant. We've been excited about a Brandon Clark or uh, you know some of the the good stories coming out of Miami. You know Tyler Hero and and so on. Um, but R.J. Barrett sort of forgotten. And he's a guy where he really embraced going to New York. He talked about how his family uh, had been Knicks fans in the past. Uh, He understood kind of the the tough parts about it, but he went in there with an open mind and an open heart. And seeing him play earlier this week, I got to say, man, it really just looks like his whole life is just a blur. Like it's all coming at him so (laughs) fast. And it's such a dysfunctional environment. They've already changed coaches once. Uh, the veterans, uh, much like in Cleveland, there's just you know competing interest between veterans and young players. RJ is not a very good playmaker for his teammates. His passes are not on target a lot of the time, and so I think from that standpoint, if I was an established NBA player, I wouldn't necessarily want to cede center stage to him. Uh, he is a, a very gifted athlete, uh, has good scoring instincts but it hasn't been this overwhelming kind of phenomenon, uh, you know, in a rookie year that you might hope for or expect uh, if you're a team taking him that high uh, and, you know, giving him and empowering him in a big time way. On top of that, you have a team that's near the league lead in flagrant fouls, technical fouls. Uh, You know, in that Lakers game, Bobby Portis just basically decapitates, uh, you know, one of the Lakers players, Catavius Caldwell-Pope, during a dunk attempt. Uh, after the game, the coach is like, "Yeah, we got to play hard, but we got to play smart." And it's like, "Yeah, we know Mike Miller. It's it's not happening <laughs> right now in New York." So I guess what I'm saying is this all kind of lines up. There's different flavors of dysfunction. So here's how I want to address it, Michael. I want to uh, you to imagine you're sort of the R.J. Barrett of this 2020 draft class. Okay, you are a top five or top ten level pick. Okay, now there's a long track record of guys in the NBA who did not handle things like R.J. Barrett did with class, right, and embracing the New York environment. Guys like Steve Francis or Zach Levine, you know, putting his head on the table when he gets drafted by the Timberwolves, where they just want out of an environment kind of no matter what. And we're seeing, you know, some of those same, uh, you know, feelings emanating from Cleveland right now. So here's the deal. We are going to rank our top three dead end franchises Michael and that's based on you being a top 10 pick and it's the places that you would do everything in your power to force a trade so you didn't have to report to camp or you would you know go viral on Twitter because of your reaction to getting drafted by that organization and uh, you can, in your in you know imaginary world Michael you could be a one and done player you could be a four year college uh, graduate you could be a slovenian sensation you can write any Narrative for yourself that you want, but what I need you to do for me is to rank the top three NBA dead ends for you. This is not objective, this is subjective completely, and I need you to explain why they're your biggest dead ends. Okay, so what is your number one NBA dead end
1: and why? This is first of all, I love this exercise, I had a lot of fun with this, but I'm pretty sadistic as a host, right? I mean. (laughs) So, the, the, my number one is a pretty hot take, I think, that will upset some people, but it is the San Antonio Spurs.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> you went there. I never so, would have guessed in a mil- million years. So, tell me why. Yeah. It took some, some real soul-searching and thinking to get here, but, you know, I've never been to San Antonio. I'm sure it's lovely. Uh, I, I grew up, actually, with David Robinson as my favorite player, and... Obviously, I have the utmost respect for this organization, but I no, you don't. This f- you just called them a worst I, no, dead in well, the okay. Sacramento Kings. Okay? okay, you can't pretend. Okay. They, I mean, you okay. don't have to put a lipstick on the pig. Okay, you're calling them out. It's fine. Um, okay, go so, for it. But so, why? So my rationale is basically like there's this fear that you know that some people have. I think a lot of people have of getting in at the end of something where you join an organization when. Basically, the glory days are in the past. It was, uh, I think it was Tony Soprano who said it really beautifully on The Sopranos. And I never thought I would be quoting Tony Soprano in this podcast, but getting it at the end of something where, um, you know, everything in the past in the rearview mirror is constantly haunting you. And that's how I would feel if I was drafted by the Spurs, where Greg Popovich is on his way out. This might be his last season. Maybe I don't even get to play for Greg Popovich, which would just be like totally devastating. But then this whole fan base expects greatness, and they should. And that's a lot of pressure. It's like, I think one of the worst sport athlete jobs for the next 50 years is going to be whoever replaces Tom Brady like whoever comes in and is the next franchise player for the San Antonio Spurs after the era of dominance that they had for 20 years that just is it's going to be terrible and I it's never going to be a free agency destination Um, I don't know what their path is to ever winning another title Uh, you know they could tank it I suppose and try to get another Tim Duncan but So, are you know a dozen other teams in the league with the same strategy? So, as a small market, and again, I've never been to San Antonio, but I just I'm a person who's always lived in big cities my whole life, and I it just wouldn't be for me, and there would be this constant fear of not living up to. Tim Duncan, Manny Ginobili, Tony Parker, Greg Popovich. It would just be a lot of pressure that me personally, I would definitely struggle under.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great comparison you're making here. I mean, you're basically saying the Spurs are layman brothers, and you don't want to be the guy who shows up for his first day of work when the bank is (laughs) repossessing the New York City skyscraper, right? I mean, you're just saying, look, like the the glory days are behind them. I get it. Um, In defense of San Antonio, I would say these things. First of all, there is such a good Brazilian steakhouse downtown right by the, the cheap Marriott <laughs> hotel, that I think I put on something like 20 to 25 pounds during the uh, 2014 playoffs. I ate so much steak at Texas Day Brazil. I think it's actually a chain, so it's not like it's San Antonio only. Um, I ate so much steak and meat at Texas Day Brazil over the course of that two-month time period. that That's what prompted me to go vegetarian, and I haven't eaten meat since. So it's been a five-year detox for me from San Antonio's, uh, meat capabilities. So just you know, what a legacy. I know. <laughs> so that, I don't know if that's a pro or a con actually for San Antonio. Cause we don't want you to show up and, you know, balloon into like a 285 pound rookie where everybody's doing the body shaming stuff. Uh, if you're a prospect. So fair enough. The only thing I would say when I'm making these decisions, and I'm going to re- release my list after you do yours. Uh, Front office structure is so important to me and ownership vision is really important to me. And I do think that San Antonio checks those boxes in ways a lot of other places don't. The tricky thing, though, is if Popovich does decide this is sort of his last run and there's been, you know, some mild rumblings about that, that's tricky because uh, then everyone gets exposed, right? Then all the myth of the San Antonio front office and the genius and all that stuff, Uh, you know, it really becomes time for, you know, those guys to make their own legacies and make their own marks. But I do think there's an organizational stability and vision um, and culture that is a real thing down there. And there's also an awesome, awesome fan base. And that would be important to me too. Look, if I'm going to be a top 10 pick, I need people buying my jerseys and cheering for me and making me feel good as I struggle through my first couple of years. And the San Antonio fans, they are demanding. They expect greatness, no question, but they will show up and cheer really loud.
1: Yeah, I I hear what you're saying there. I do think there's a little bit of a question mark with the ownership situation. And who knows how much longer R.C. Buford's going to be there after Popovich leaves. And, you know, a lot of people, they've been bleeding intelligence for, you know, years, rightfully so. But I just don't—I th- I think that, you know, Popovich really is what separates them from a lot of other organizations. He's such a powerful, influential figure. And once he's gone, I don't really know if it really matters, even if the organization was was fluid and stable. I mean, if you're crappy, you're crappy, right? Man, you are just
0: apocalyptic. Poor San Antonio. All right, give me your number two. I mean, you're, you're making great arguments. Give me your
1: number two oh. dead-end uh, NBA situation. Okay, so, I mean, we're going back to Cleveland real quick. <laughs> oh, boy. Um I mean this is it's like one of the 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 number one reasons why you could argue that LeBron James is the best player ever is because he won a title with this organization. I mean it's they're constantly in a state of dysfunction. Uh right now they're building around two like undersized point guards. They have no wings on the roster. I, I, they like imagining them signing a meaningful free agent like for the rest of time is very very difficult to do i mean i yeah. love visiting the midwest but they str- unless it's chicago i just would not want to live there right
0: either. they struggle to get guys with lebron as the as the hook right i mean like recruiting to cleveland yeah. is difficult okay so what el- what else is on your list of negatives
1: about cleveland like what about this beeline situation how would you feel playing for him I mean, if he's—so, again, I I did listen to the the Woj pod with him, and he had this anecdote about in training camp, he was uh, basically teaching a weave. They were running a three-man weave in the NBA during training camp, and he was admonishing players who did not have spin on the ball when they threw passes, so— I would not be okay with that. <laughs> just that—that that would not be something that jibed with me at all. I would uh, probably walk out at that point if I was wow. an NBA player you're or p- like a really. You're, you're pouting. You've got the ego. You're putting
0: on your your arm sleeves. You're just ripping them off, and you're just walking out of the gym in frustration. This
1: old guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's that serious. I'm I'm channeling my inner Steve Francis right now. How how do I sound? Good. <laughs> you sound incredible. All right. Uh, anything else on Cleveland? or Are we ready for number three? I th- I I, I want to move past Cleveland. I just I don't know. I mean, you've you've been there a ton with the finals, and I don't know what your thoughts are. Oh, about well, it, but-
0: we're going to get but- to my thoughts on Cleveland here in a little bit when I do my list. But you go ahead with number three.
1: <laughs> All right. My number three is the Charlotte Hornets. And, I mean, we can talk basketball, obviously. I mean, they're, they're, they've they're been in a very hopeless situation for a while with how they're building. They're trying to get out of it now, and I, I see signs of hope there. But just like – okay, so let me, let me just talk about myself for two seconds. So – my social life is pretty non-existent. I'm I'm someone who's happy to sit at home on a Friday or Saturday night and binge watch 90 Day Fiance with my wife. I'm not a big party person, don't really go to bars. But when I watch the Hornets play basketball, I get a serious case of FOMO. And I can only imagine how I would feel playing for them. I mean, nobody's at the games. I would never be on national television. No one is ever talking about me. Nobody cares. I would constantly be wondering what it was like to play for any of the 29 other teams. It would be psychologically a nightmare. And that's that's the best. I, I mean, I the, the, the best I could say is that they have Bojangles down there, and it's delicious. But I I have really nothing else positive to say about my hypothetical experience playing for the Charlotte Hornets. Yeah.
0: And look, Michael, as your agent, I'm not going to recommend that you choose your future NBA home uh, based on the Bowberry biscuits as beautiful and great as they are. <laughs> uh, that's not the number one factor. I think you're making a great point. Relevance really matters, not only to you, but to, I think, a lot of uh, you know, high-profile teenagers. The idea that your Instagram account ca- uh, and your clout and your TikTok views are all going to be depressed because you're playing in Charlotte, you know, without, uh, you know, a lot of attention there. It's a factor. I mean, it would it would probably weigh into my consciousness as well if I was in that situation. I think your best bet would try to, you know, be uh, befriend DaBaby and then see if DaBaby will wear your jersey during concerts regularly. I think he really prefers the Larry Johnson throwback. Understandable. But if you got him like the 2021, you know, Pina, jersey and he's wearing that on stage and you're just kind of like hanging with his click i think you would have a chance to maybe you know weasel your way into a little bit of fame but honestly like that is very dependent upon your ability to establish rapport with the baby and i can't guarantee that because i just don't know him personally or, or anything else like that so uh probably not worth the risk and an awesome top three list from you are you ready for my top three I cannot wait. Number one is Cleveland. There's no question about it. (laughs) And there's a lot of reasons for this. Now, guys, again, this is a personal list. You'll remember that my extended family uh, is all from Michigan. Um, Ohio State has tormented me. For years and years and years on the football field, there's no question about it. I just have to own those losses. You can't get around it. And when I covered games in Cleveland, they would always flash up, you know, the Michigan M on the scoreboard, the gigantic jumbotron they have to elicit a lot of boos from the crowd. (laughs) And I've never forgotten that pain, Cleveland. Never. Now, on top of that, if we look at their vegetarian uh, options for food. It's mozzarella sticks and french fries. Okay. That's not going to cut it. All right, guys. There's just a lack of balanced, healthy food options in the general vicinity of downtown. And I know that makes me sound picky. I actually am not a very picky eater, but uh, I've struggled in Cleveland to, uh, you know, uh, keep up with my preferred lifestyle. I'm also not a cold weather guy. So being on Lake Erie during December and January, does not sound great. On top of that, I have always been raised that Lake Michigan is the greatest of the lakes and Erie is, if not fifth, then certainly, you know, lower on the, on the list. Um, so all of these factors together with the beeline questions that you raised with the ownership questions, just, you know, it's, it's been a kind of a unstable place, uh, even during the LeBron era. And then Kobe Altman, I think, is still trying to find himself as a GM. I actually like the boldness with the Kyrie Irving trade from him right out of the gate. Um, in terms of how you put that package together, it backfired. So I understand everyone's going to question him on that one. Um, but some of the moves since I think are are you know open ended and uh, you know have not necessarily made him look great. So add all of that up, I see no positives. I don't really like their jersey colors. <laughs> um, the building is good the crowd can definitely get loud um but i think at this point it's better off leaving that for someone else that's my rundown of cleveland
1: are, are you with wait, me wait can on- i ma- can i make one more point cuz you just brought up the crowd noise they pump that's the it's like the number one most artificial noise arena in the league it's got to be right like whenever i watch games there i can't be in the gym i have to be in the media room it is too loud i hate it it's great that you brought that up it just reminded me of it
0: Right. And you know what? On top of that, in terms of the crowd stuff, like I'm so glad that they won a title because that, I think, was so big for their fan base. And it was one of the greatest titles in NBA history, just how the story played out. So it's, it's awesome that they have it. I think I'm just kind of like the soft... Malibu, you know, lover of life type of guy. Where let's all just like sit around and try to maintain our positivity. I'm not into yoga yet because I'm not very flexible, but I could see myself going down that route. This idea of the deep self-loathing of the Cleveland sports fan—I think it would break me. I don't know if I'm <laughs> mentally strong enough to to uh, hold up under that baggage. At, like you know, all these players have to do. And so, from that standpoint, I'm just checking out. That's my number one. Number two. For boy, a lot of the same reasons is Detroit. Now, Detroit is in Michigan. I have love for uh, Detroit as a city. I know they're you know trying to launch this renaissance, this comeback. Um, and kudos for everyone trying to revitalize that city. The cold weather stuff would definitely get to me. I think um, I like the fact that the arena is downtown. Uh, you know, I think that's healthy. But you know, they're still working their way into it. The fan base has just been through so much you know, since the end of, you know, kind of the glory days more than 10 years ago now, coaching changes constantly. Uh, The front office, I do not trust whatsoever. I would never want to play with Reggie Jackson as one of my teammates under any circumstances. I've called him Root Canal Reggie uh, for his approach to basketball. (laughs) Uh, The Blake Griffin contract is probably going to paralyze that franchise for the foreseeable future. And he's good enough where when he's healthy as a prospect, I would have to take a back seat to him. And then they probably need to trade uh, Andre Drummond here before the deadline too. It's just more uncertainty. So from that standpoint, I see no major positives. I do like the, the franchise's history, um, but I think I might demand a trade if I was, you know, being projected on the mock drafts to go to
1: Detroit. I would be pulling out every stop to avoid it. Detroit probably would have been on my list if my mother-in-law, who lives in Detroit, uh, did not listen to this podcast, so (laughs) hello, Evelyn, love you. Hey, Um, Evelyn, I love you, too. Never met you, but thanks for letting me borrow Michael twice a week. I appreciate it. So, yeah, Detroit, it's been really rough. I just wrote this piece for SB Nation about their need to rebuild and the Blake Griffin surgery and the Andre Drummond trade rumors and the fact that they really don't have anything except Derrick Rose to dangle out to get future assets, missing Donovan Mitchell in the draft and picking Luke Kennard instead—it's been—it's been a rough, rough go for the Detroit Pistons. For sure. Now, my my number three spot on my
0: dead ends list, and I mentioned this to you before the show. I really agonized over this because there's so many great contenders. Now, a lot of people are going to think I would say the Phoenix Suns. You people are wrong. Um, I like the warm weather. I kind of like what they were trying to do with the whole Valley Boys thing. And I look at a player like Kelly Oubre finding success down there. And I think, you know what? If Kelly can do it, I can do it. Um, so from that standpoint, I would not nominate the Suns, but I thought about it. I certainly thought long and hard about the Sacramento Kings, but the fact that they're in California kept them off my, uh, my list. I would be very nervous about working for an organization run by Vivek and Vlade. The two Vs just do not inspire a lot of confidence. Um, other candidates, of course, you know, the Washington wizards question mark, New York Knicks that we mentioned earlier, I would hate to be in a blur (laughs) like RJ Barrett. Um, and there's others that, you know, would make me kind of stop twice and think, but my number three team, it's the Chicago bulls. Now, Chicago is, Chicago is a beautiful city just not during the NBA season. It's not. And during my summers, there are more beautiful places to go than Chicago. And so I would probably want to be, you know, in the off season going somewhere else. Um, The big city thing to me is definitely uh, attractive. Uh, LA, New York, uh, there's certainly other places I think I could make it work. Uh, But Chicago with the cold fronts coming in over the lake with the crazy snow... I don't know if I could do it for the whole season, but the real deciding factor, it's not the weather. It's not being in Michael Jordan's shadow and knowing that you're never going to be able to live up to those glory days. It's not being forced to watch Zach Levine play basketball. It's none of those things. It is gar Packs. I could not hand over my 20s to their front office under any circumstances. If I had to uh, you know, plot my course becoming a max level player I just could not trust them. I don't even know if I could stomach Boylan and just his whole thing. As a player, I think it would probably get old. And there was definitely some players who were ready to revolt last year. It seemed like I might have been in that group. I might have been preparing for a mutiny uh, if I was, uh, you know, I could have been talked into it. I would have been mutiny curious, I suppose is the way to put it. (laughs) Uh, But it comes down to their front office. I just couldn't do it. I see no reason to believe that that franchise is going to get back to being a premier organization. And, you know, I'm a guy who uh, expects greatness, respects greatness. I call
1: myself a win connoisseur. I just don't see a lot of winning going on in Chicago. I I hear everything you're saying, and I'm also someone who despises cold weather despite living in Brooklyn. Um, GARPAX is tough. It would be really tough to deal with. There's just no accountability in that organization. And uh, I... I it did. They didn't really ever. I didn't really ever consider them on my list just because if I did somehow lead the Bulls back to prominence, like it would be like that's a marquee organization. You'd be one of the most famous people in the country, probably. Oh, it, really, so, it really is. And their jerseys are sick, their logo is sick, the
0: stadium and the history is all sick. The thing I just kept coming back to, is like, would I rather play for the Phoenix Suns and just buy a Michael Jordan throwback jersey or actually be forced to
1: (laughs) play for the Chicago Bulls? And I was like, you know what? I'll just take the Phoenix experience. You'd you'd basically be what Otto Porter has decided to do this season, which is just (laughs) wear a turtleneck on the sidelines behind the bench the entire year. So shout out to him. (laughs) It's, it's, It's tough times right now in Chicago.
0: A quick word from our sponsor, Health IQ. Are you averaging eight hours of sleep per night? Check. Are you eating a quality plant-based diet? Check. Are you exercising four or more times per week? Check. Basically, if you're like me, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. Isn't it time for you to be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? That's where Health IQ comes in. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you, on their life insurance, if you're a runner or a cyclist, if you're into CrossFit, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, then you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ can help save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risks for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com floor That's healthiq.com slash floor to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash floor and let them know we sent you. So you can start the process with that health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One more time. That's health slash floor. Okay, Michael, we got some great questions. I'm going to start you with a couple of just quick hitter ideas from uh, around the globe. Okay, uh, Lewis from Tucson writes, I'm listening to the latest open floor and Joe's suggestion for the most dedicated award sounds awesome. Now we're talking about ways to honor and commemorate David Stern. uh, But Lewis points out that it could be simplified because Joe's idea reminds him of the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award in the NFL. It's never going to get the same publicity or clicks like the MVP does, but there is a dedicated fan base who really cares about that award, and more importantly, the players in the running for it really seem to care as well. I think the NBA Man of the Year Award would be the perfect way to honor Mr. Stern. Lewis, you did it. You cracked the code. I'm in. It's the NBA Man of the Year Award. Michael, are
1: you in? Yeah, I'm down. I mean, this is basically what we discussed on the uh, on last week's episode but it's just cleaner called the david stern
0: man of the year
1: award it's perfect right i love it yeah um this is uh it really be interesting to see how people would engage with it and who would be a candidate and uh so yeah i'm a big fan I'm into. Awesome work. I love
0: when the open floor globe helps us refine idea an idea on the fly and we get to the right outcome at the end. It's part of the brainstorming process. We love it. All right. Another idea from JC from France and he's coming at you, Michael. I love this too. He writes just a note regarding the change that Michael proposed if he was commissioner for a day in which you would get rid of uh, all basketball interference. Michael, don't you realize you would have robbed the basketball community of an iconic moment last year? Uh, Kawhi Leonard's Game 7 shot against the Sixers, there was four bounces. Someone could have risen up like Ben Simmons and knocked the ball off the rim before the second bounce. Michael, I know you respect that moment, so don't you want to reconsider your idea? Michael, it's a great point. I hadn't considered this, but... You would be changing a huge moment in NBA history with your rule change uh, going forward. Are you
1: still in favor of getting rid of basket interference? I mean, JC just brings up a great point. I'm not changing my stance on this at all, but that was a great moment in NBA history. Uh, I will say, though, that imagine if everyone was allowed to just crash the rim after the first bounce. Like... How entertaining would that be? Who knows? You, you say Ben Simmons gets to it. Who knows? Marcus Saul's right there. Marcus Saul could have been the hero. Would Joel Embiid have even gone out to contest, knowing that he could have hung around at the rim to swat a potential bouncing ball away? Like, there's so many different scenarios that could have happened. Had, uh, had the rules been different. So I I see JC's point. I love his point. Uh, I wouldn't want to change that moment at all. But I am just saying, you know, there's a reason also that a ball has not bounced on the rim like 17 times and gone in to win a game seven of a playoff series before. So let's not, you know, overreact to that one moment is what I'd say.
0: Yeah. Um, I think you just want to bring slam ball to the NBA, right? Where you just want just rim attacks constantly on on all bouncing shots. I can't Let's argue do it. against that. That sounds pretty fun. I do think we need to think through the specifics on this one. Now, we got an email from Scott in Singapore who said he loved the segment on being commissioner for a day, and he had a whole bunch of different ideas. I want to highlight one of his, though, and I think it was actually the most, uh, or I guess the least radical idea. He wants to implement... FIBA's unsportsmanlike foul rule when you just grab a guy not making a play on the ball. Uh, I think the idea of that rule basically is to open up transition opportunities so you get to see more dunks and more highlight level plays um, rather than just getting the annoying dead ball. Now, when guys make that foul, I think you know old school people would say, oh, smart foul, smart foul, taking away two points, right? But if we're looking at it from the entertainment side of the game, it definitely makes the NBA worse. And so they should institute that Uh, You know, it's kind of similar to the clear path foul, I guess. But should we be in favor of rule changes that I guess open up or, or even bringing in a continuation idea where if there is like a touch foul in transition, the referees can opt not to call it until the play continues to see if the guy gets the dunk? Should we be angling for more open play in transition? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, those fouls, I, I call them the Pablo Prigioni fouls because I didn't I never really noticed them as being such a nuisance until Pablo came into the league. But they're terrible. Like every single time someone is there's a possibility of the literally the most exciting sequence in the game. Uh, a fast break opportunity, it gets broken up by a whistle and a foul. Like I, I personally hate it watching the game. And I know Jeff Van Gundy has gone on multiple rants about it. I would love to see this rule changed.
0: Uh, I'm with you. Let's uh, shift gears here to another question from Brandon uh, in L.A. He writes, the Knicks did a very good job signing everyone to partially guaranteed contracts over the summer. Now is the time for New York to follow up and build on the one smart thing that they've done in over a decade and trade away some of those assets and turn them into real talent. The current squad is obviously no good, but they have the ability to improve their team for the future or even for the rest of their season. So why haven't the Knicks made a trade yet? And who should be the first Knicks player to get traded? So first of all, I think, you know, they haven't made a trade yet, because we haven't gotten to the trade deadline. That's usually when most activity happens. So that's number one. Uh, And usually, that's where the best value is when you're selling off guys in this scenario, is to wait to the last moment and kind of hope that a bidding war emerges. But I want to push back a little bit here on the premise, Brandon, uh, real quick before I throw it to you, Michael. Uh, Just because i think this idea that oh you've got flexible contracts so they're very movable trade assets it sounds good in theory but i really do think there's a destabilizing element to it in the you know in practice uh where you bring all these guys with competing interests you know veterans who don't know where their next uh, situation are going to be guys who just took the biggest contract they could find and then expected that they would be traded down the road And it makes for a very difficult developmental culture, it makes it hard for young guys to learn feel like they're going to be surrounded by guys who are going to be invested in their success. uh, And you know, feel like those guys are still going to be there two or three years from now. It's just tough. I feel bad for RJ Barrett, you know, being thrust into that situation, knowing that a lot of the guys who are his teammates this year aren't going to be his teammates two years from now. It's not healthy, it's not good. So I don't think we should be giving the Knicks a lot of credit for this short term contract strategy. Yes, it's better than signing terrible players to four-year contracts for no reason, right? But only marginally better, not significantly better. I don't think this summer was even a good salvage from New York. Now, Michael,
1: what say you? So SNY's Ian Begley recently reported that teams uh, around the league that call the Knicks about their players are under the impression that they don't want draft picks and future assets, which I find fascinating. Um I mean, if I were operating the Knicks, I would be looking to move guys like Marcus. I would, well, first of all, I would be looking to move probably everybody on the roster um, except R.J. Barrett. But I would look at, be looking to trade guys who I think are on contracts that you could actually get some value for are like Marcus Morris, who's shooting like 48% from three and I, th- I believe is their leading scorer. Uh, right now guys who you know like Wayne Ellington a three-point shooter Reggie Bullock a three-point shooter someone who uh, a contending team can utilize Um, you know if they are actually interested in upgrading this year's roster for the sake of I would assume trying to be stable for next season when the following summer they'll have max Max cap space and be able to sign someone like Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, that's probably their thought process, but like I don't, I just don't, I don't, I don't really get that at all. I think that you should be trying to get future assets, and uh, if they don't and they want to go another route, you know, I would look to move, you know, Frank Ntilikina, Dennis Smith, Kevin Knox, even Mitchell Robinson, maybe if you can try to get players who are. More win now players, but I just—if you're really—if you're—if you're putting all your eggs in the basket to try to, uh, to try to score big and free in free agency two summers from now, you're definitely going about it all wrong, and you haven't learned anything from this past summer.
0: That sounds about right. I'm not sure they have learned anything at all. Uh, I would be trying to <laughs> trade the front office. I think at this point, I'd be thinking about it if I was ownership, and I know that's uh, just setting it back to square one, but. That's what I would do if I was Dolan, I would be less concerned about trying to squeeze out whatever value from these uh, players who, in most cases, aren't actually that good or that valuable. And I would be more focused on, let's get in a high level executive who could turn this thing around. And that's probably going to have to wait until this summer. Um, so I guess my, my general takeaway is, I don't think this trade deadline is going to be bringing the Knicks a lot of assets. I think it's going to be more like a garage sale than anything else. I think that there are some, you know, Knicks castoffs, especially Marcus Morris, who could change uh, the trajectory slightly of a playoff team. But I don't think it's going to be a big time impact maker. And I think every single player on that roster should be available in trade, with the exception of RJ Barrett. So that includes Mitchell Robinson, who I understand has a lot of, you know, legions of fans there in New York City but is really still struggling to become you know, a night-to-night NBA player. So hope that was dark enough for you, Brandon. I got nothing nice to say about the Knicks. All <laughs> right, a little bit of a lighter co- uh, question here from Nick. He writes, Am I the only person who gets more hyped up for great defensive plays than
1: offensive brilliance? Michael, how about you? <laughs> I will say uh, I love defense. And whenever I'm watching a game on DVR, uh a majority of the time I'm rewinding a play is because I want to appreciate something that a team did or a player did on the defensive end that I probably didn't catch the first time around. So I love defense. I mean, I, I also think that, you know, watching offense is probably more of an entertaining proposition, but uh, I can see the value in both. I have
0: always loved chase down blocks. There was a great story years and years ago by Jonathan <laughs> Abrams. Uh, on sort of the art of the chase down block and, you know, it was focused around LeBron James. I think he called him like the king of the chase down block. Um, at that time, it was a Nicholas Batum specialty was the chase down block. So I went and rewatched all his blocks, charted up how many chase downs that he had, the long arms, the loping stride and transition. He was just like perfectly built for it. I think... I don't know if I go poster dunk or chase down block. If I had to choose one, it's really, really close. Because I love the poster dunks. I'm real deep into the uh, the dunk contest game. So anytime there's someone who just like, you know, really uh, gets someone hard, uh, that excites me. But chase down blocks are incredible. It kind of goes back to like LeBron. Will we say LeBron's signature play of his entire career is the block? I mean, I think I would say I, that.
1: I, I was about to bring this up and to kind of answer your question in a way, do you think if LeBron... So right after the chase down block a couple minutes later, he had that play where he cut, and I think Kyrie hit him from the baseline, and he had this potential just... Like, he was about to eviscerate Draymond Green with a dunk and instead missed the dunk, got fouled, was laying around on the ground for a few minutes. If he made that dunk and won exclamation point, they're they're definitely going to win the championship. Is that the statement play that we all remember? Or do we still remember the block? We
0: remember both. And it just becomes this whole thing of like LeBron, you know, two way greatness at his absolute apex, he can do it in every direction, you know, the highlight play, but also the hustle play, like, I think it would be become a duality where you wouldn't be able to remember one without the other. The Draymond dunk is one of the greatest what-ifs in NBA history. I mean, oh my God, (laughs) we were close to maybe a new NBA logo at that point. Like if you're Adam Silver and you see that happen and that's how Cleveland's title drought ends, that's how LeBron completes his narrative arc, do you consider calling Jerry West and being like, bro, I know the ball in your left hand as you're kind of like, you know, wiggling down the court has been pretty iconic for us. But we actually have the greatest dunk in NBA history that we want to turn into a silhouette of LeBron on Draymond. Um, Are you cool if we just like, you know, submit a new proof for a new logo?
1: Does that bother you? I mean, I think you have to explore that. Also, follow up question that just popped into my head. If LeBron made that dunk on Draymond, Draymond goes into the parking lot after the game and calls KD. Does KD even answer the phone? Very good question and also does Draymond ever sign
0: with Clutch? Can you come back from that? Like <laughs> can you can you <laughs> can you align yourself with the business interests of the guy who pulverized you? I think these are all like I said, it's a great 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 NBA what if. All right, we got another question here from Tanner. He writes, "So Ben, no opinions on the Utah Jazz at all? I listen every week and you guys never talk about them except once in a while to talk about Conley." a third of the way through the season, and we haven't gotten any takes on Donovan Mitchell, uh, Bojan Bogdanovic, how well or how poorly they're playing, their schedule. Are they under or overperforming? Nothing at all. And Tanner, I appreciate this question because you realized that I was probably going to take three weeks to read it, which is exactly what happened. So you (laughs) left it totally open-ended so that I would just say anything about your team. Um, I appreciate that. Now, I do have a few scattered Utah Jazz takes, but Michael... What is your sense of, like, the state of the Utah Jazz Union? How are you feeling about the Jazz right now?
1: It's pretty tough. I mean, they, you know, after the first few weeks of the season, I was thinking that they were the most disappointing team in the whole league, probably. I mean, I thought that they were a legitimate championship contender coming in. And, you know, they ripped off 12 of 13 against a cupcake schedule, and Mike Conley has not played since December 4th, so I just feel like there's more questions than answers right now with this team. They, they clearly miss Derek Favors. Rudy Go- When Rudy Gobert sits, their defense is really bad. Uh, I thought Donovan Mitchell would be a little bit better, although I feel like his shot selection is coming around after an atrocious start to the year, and... You know, when they traded for Jordan Clarkson, my initial reaction was, wow, they are extremely desperate. But he's played okay. I'm a little skeptical that he'll keep that up. Um, My last thought real quick is just that Bogdanovich has looked like an all-star. And when he curls around those screens at the elbow and catches a pass at the free throw line and pulls up, it goes in. I th- uh, let me, uh, checking my notes right now, 100% of the time. So <laughs> that play has worked out tremendous for them. Uh, so the Jazz, are, they're interesting. I don't know if they're a contender anymore. And I'm really, I'm scared for when Conley comes back, what they look like. Yeah. So
0: I think first things first, Tanner, I know you're begging for a little attention here, but you don't need us to tell you the Utah Jazz have started to figure it out, right? I mean, as Michael said, the, the schedule started to balance out, come back to earth a little bit. And they go on a big time winning streak and they're ripping off victories and looking much more functional and much closer to what we thought at the start of the season. Uh, Now, I think the biggest question for them is it's the all star one that you raised. You know, Bogdanovich, he's not really going to be in this conversation, I don't think. Um, But I think they have an interesting dilemma is their representative, and I think they're going to get a representative, right? At least one. Will it be Rudy Gobert? or Donovan Mitchell. And when I look at the Jazz, I still feel like their defining player is Gobert. I think they win with defense more than offense. I think that he's been snubbed some previous years, which shouldn't factor in as a heavy factor, but it needs to be considered. I still think he is one of the very most influential defensive figures in the entire league. He's got good numbers. He's an efficient offensive threat, even though he doesn't have the most complete offensive game. And I still feel bad that he cried about not getting in last year. And again, that shouldn't uh, you know weigh in here. But I do think that he has been overlooked multiple times. It feels like it's sort of uh, you know the right time to honor him. Now, so the- on the on the flip okay, side, though, yeah, on the flip side, you've got Donovan Mitchell, who is like textbook franchise player. You know, marketable, great smile, great with the media, flashy game, impressive score, big numbers, um, and. You know, he's been in the dunk contest before. He's just kind of a natural fit. It's almost like a young Damian Lillard where he was knocking on the door for a couple years too, couldn't quite crack the case. Um, And now Donovan Mitchell finds himself in a similar position as kind of a small market franchise guy, right? So there's cases for both to make it, but there's only 12 spots. I'm worried that only one of those guys is going to get in. So Michael, if you had your pick, would you take Rudy or Donovan or both or neither?
1: Joe Ingles? No, um, I, 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 <laughs> I, I'm more of a Donovan guy. I just am. I no disrespect to Rudy. Uh, their offense has been best in the NBA since Conley went down uh, in early December. Just a quick little tidbit. Uh, so, Donovan's been kind of the spark plug there. I love how he passes. I love, like, his assist numbers aren't superb, but just whenever he does get an assist, it's usually like, what the hell just happened? Like, he flicks his wrists and the ball just teleports. So, I, I just like watching him more, also. And I think Rudy has been better offensively than I anticipated this season. He looks more coordinated and stronger. But I'm going with Donovan. Okay, I hear you. So let's say Donovan does get in because of the markability
0: factor, the the offensive factor, just the, you know, he's kind of like your prototypical all-star type guy. What do you need to do if you're Donovan Mitchell to make it right with Rudy Gobert if you get in and he doesn't get in again? I feel like it's got to be like matching Rolexes for Rudy and Rudy's mom. Like, I think it has to be a major
1: gesture there, don't you think? Lifetime supply of Kleenex. Oh no! Come on! Wow, you are an anti Rudy <laughs> guy. Terrible man. Woo! No, no I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, you would have to. I feel like we we talked about this earlier. I feel like where this could create some some discomfort. Uh, I think for me though, with the Jazz, I, I assume did you did you think coming into the year that they were a championship contender? I thought they were going to be a top tier regular
0: season team, but I always have questions about you know, teams in, in terms of putting them in that. A-list category if they don't have primetime two-way wings. And so that was still my hang-up there. But I thought they had a chance to be a top two or top three seed. And that's still in play for them, right? I mean, I I don't think that's too overreactive to the recent success. I mean, the two through five pack right now in the West is is super tight. And I love how their main lineup pieces fit together. Uh, As you're saying, the offense has been excellent lately, and I expected them to have a very good offense this year. I also thought Conley was going to be a bigger part of it, so that looms as a question, um, but to me, uh, they have a chance to position themselves for home court through the first two rounds potentially, and you know at that point, uh, you're in the mix. I just still would put you know the Lakers and the Clippers a cut above them if I'm saying which teams really have a chance to win the title this year.
1: Yeah, I, I see that. But when I when I look at them, I'm kind of like Donovan. The reason why I would also have Donovan as an All-Star is because if I was crafting a case for the Utah Jazz actually getting to the finals, it would be because Donovan Mitchell had a Dwayne Wade-esque performance. So I don't know if he has that in them this season, but that's kind of what they would need to beat the Lakers, beat the Clippers, uh, and and get as far as some people thought that they could before the season began.
0: For sure. And also, you know, Rudy Gobert would need to benefit from fewer extreme small ball lineups capable of exploiting him, right? Um, I think that's Mm -hmm. a big factor for them too. Like, I don't see them, you know, winning multiple series in the playoffs in which Rudy's not leaving a major impact too, right? Like if you have to pull him out in certain matchups or you have to scale his minutes back a little bit, or he's getting exposed by Uh, you know, ball handlers like he has in the past, like a Chris Paul, uh, you know, back during those Rockets and Jazz series. I think that would be a a hang-up as well. Michael, we're going to close it out with one more email. It's very, very thoughtful. Came in from Dylan in Adelaide, South Australia, and he writes... Ben, look, I know this is off topic as far as basketball is concerned. However, as someone who appreciates the environment and helping others, combined with the fact that you have a significant platform these days, thanks to the Open Floor Globe, I was wondering if you could help us out with something that's bigger than basketball. Australia is burning and it is being saved by volunteer firefighters. We need all the fundraising we can to help these firefighters, but more importantly, to help the people who have lost everything in their lives. These fires are twice as big as the California and Amazon fires combined. The fundraiser initiated by uh, Australian comedian Celeste Barber has reached an astonishing 30 million Australian dollars and it's increasing by the day. The Australian members of the Open Floor Globe would be forever grateful for any awareness that you can create. Thanks for any help that you can provide. Dylan, thank you so much for you know putting this on the front of my uh, mental plate. It's been terrible to watch the images and the videos that have coming out from Australia. Uh, we have a very dedicated Open Floor Globe member named Cecilia who keeps me apprised of the developments on the fires on nearly a daily basis. And I appreciate her for that. The, the loss of animal life, Um, The loss of the homes that you're describing, it hits hard, man. So I encourage everyone who's listening to this, who's still with us after 60 minutes of us bantering about the absolute worst places to play professional basketball. I mean, that was a pretty extended, dark conversation. Let's spin this forward more positively to a country that is arguably number one on my bucket list right now for visiting uh, and a, a part of the globe that I've always been captivated by. If you can go find Celeste Barber's fundraiser, it's on Facebook. Just search for her name, Celeste Barber. I was checking it out. The engagement and the the donations, like Dylan was describing, were just out of this world. And Michael, we don't do this too often uh, on Open Floor. We, we did it once for Puerto Rico and a couple other things. But you know, step up, everybody. If you've got a little bit of money, you can chip in here to really help a community and a country that's in need right now. I know they would be so grateful, and I know I would be so grateful. Um, you know, on that note, Michael, we've reached the end of another podcast. Uh, you guys can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Don't forget, email in open floor mail at gmail.com, mail at gmail.com. Michael, we got like 10 more questions we didn't even get through on today's episode, so we'll be hitting those next week. There's no question about it. Also, guys, I'm on Instagram at oliver on Twitter at BenGolliver. Michael is on both Instagram and Twitter at MichaelViazinVictorPina, and you can check him out on SB Nation as well. He had a great piece on dismantling the Detroit Pistons that went up recently. Give it a read. Hey, Michael, until next week, I'll talk to you. Talk to you soon, Ben.